podcast listeners, and welcome to the 20th of March 2019 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. One of the joys of living in an international city like Hong Kong is the people you meet. People from all over the world converge on this city, and it's not unusual to have as many different nationalities as there are people in any given gathering. Each person brings their own experiences though not all of these experiences are pleasant. As we ride the MTR this week, though maybe not from Central to Shengwan on the Tunwan line, we'll be contemplating the differences and the similarities between us. Before we listen to this week's story, though, we'd like to send a big thanks to our hometown listeners in Hong Kong. Thanks for being the loyal, supportive crowd that you are. Thanks go out, too, to our overseas ears that are listening to us especially listeners in Exeter in the United Kingdom and Exeter in Canada, Lusaka and Kitwe in Zambia, and Kazan in Russia. We appreciate you listening too. Our March 27th show is only a week away and tickets are selling fast. This show is a bit of a different style to our usual. If you've attended our regular shows, you'll want to give this one a try too. The stories will be more fragmented and woven together with images to create a new experience for our audiences. Get your tickets through the website at hongkongstories.com. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than comedy. It's better than drama. It's real life. And now from our November 2018 show as part of the Hong Kong International Literary Festival, performed at the Taekwon Heritage Centre in Hong Kong, here is Sao Mai. I was in the metro on a Saturday morning. Metro is how we call the MTR in Montreal. I checked the metro map. Three more stations to go. The doors opened, and I looked distractedly at the passengers coming in. One man attracted my attention. He must have weighed around 300 pounds, and he zoomed for the reserved seat. His face is red, and he's sweating profusely. And I thought, all right then, maybe he does need the reserved seat. A woman entered the wagon and stood in front of him. She held the handrail close. She was wearing really high heels, a tight short dress, and lots of makeup on a Saturday morning. The makeup didn't look fresh, though. Suddenly, the man yelled at her, you bitch. And the wagon went completely silent as everyone simultaneously turned their heads in the same direction. Uh, Identical thoughts were rushing through our minds, right? There are three possible scenarios here. One, he's delusional. Two, she did something to provoke him, but no one had seen what that was. And three, they know each other. And something from the private realm is about to explode in public. We didn't have to wait long. It was number three. Everyone simultaneously looked away. Cell phones suddenly became very interesting. The lady to my right picked up the newspaper from the floor and started ruffling through the pages. I took a deep breath and looked at the metro map again. But 
I was curious, and I glanced their way again. I looked at her more closely, and it struck me that we seemed to be worlds apart. I had certainly never worn heels that high, a dress that short, and that much makeup. I had just graduated three years ago from an all-girls high school run by Catholic nuns. Our skirts were knee-length. We didn't talk about violence or abuse by men. Sure, we were given guidance on how to build our confidence. Maybe the hope was that, armed with confidence, we would know what to do when confronted with violence and we wouldn't get into abusive relationships. For example, we were told, repeat to yourself, you are beautiful, you are kind, you are capable. And we didn't question uh, the effectiveness of this tool for matters of the heart. We put it to good use elsewhere. Before writing a difficult physics exam or stepping on stage, we'd wink at each other. Girls, remember, you're beautiful, you're kind, you're capable. Then we graduated, stepped into college, ready to bloom into confident young professional women. I had just started dating my now husband. He was a gentle man. He never raised his voice, even when he was upset. I didn't need to remind myself that I was beautiful, kind, and capable in his presence. He did it for me. And there I was, staring at a very different dynamic three meters away from me. Suddenly I hear, you fucking cow. My jaw dropped all on its own, and he noticed, and he glanced my way, stared at me straight in the eyes. All my muscles jerked my body and gazed in the opposite direction. My jaw clamped shut. Then I heard a female voice, her voice, saying, I'm sorry. The newspaper stopped ruffling. If at all possible, the wagon became even more silent. The doors opened, and um, some unknowing passengers stepped in. Apparently, that was his cue to ignore her apology, and he continued to berate her. The new passengers stared wide-eyed. The old passengers expressed different versions of, here we go again. One sighed. Another closed his eyes. I checked the metro map yet again. Two more stations. While my eyes wandered upwards, somehow they met hers. I smiled, a quick involuntary smile, like when you get caught when you just want to be invisible. She immediately looked down. But I couldn't look away. My eyes were trying to tell her, Ma'am, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. Look at the size of me. Look at him. I... She looked up at me again. Ma'am, if I do something, it may sense him further, and you may end up paying a higher price later on, and I don't want that to happen to you, right? But I still can't look away. All I managed was another smile. It felt futile. 
but she smiled back. Suddenly, another spew of insults hit her, but this time, she interrupted him. Look, I already said that I'm sorry. Then she looked over to me, expectantly. Her eyes were asking me, do you approve? Ma'am, no, you've chosen the wrong person to be your ally. Do you know what I have to guide me when I need to feel strong? Would you like me to remind you that you're beautiful, kind, and capable? Would that help you? I looked away. People were tense. We all heard the change in tone, and we were bracing ourselves for a brutal counterattack from him. The Metro recording announced then that my station was next. I had 30 seconds to decide. Will I stay on or leave? Walking away from all of this would be such a relief. But is it the right thing to do? The doors opened. By now, there was a heated exchange between the two of them, and I thought, she's defending herself. She'll be all right. And right before the doors shut close, I slipped out of the wagon. But I felt no relief. It took only the length of time between three metro stations for my mask to fall. That mask was the confidence of my sheltered self. For what's the use of being beautiful, kind, and capable in front of an angry man? I would have needed courage to stay on and stand by this woman. I just didn't have it in me. It was too late now. The doors were closed for good. All I could do was run to the doors that faced her directly, and I gave her one last smile. She let go of the handrail then, and under the man's suspicious, furious gaze, she wobbled on her heels to come face me. There were only the closed doors between us. And she grinned. In that moment, I thought she was brave. The metro moved, and she waved at me. Not a timid, discreet wave. She waved with both arms and took up all the width of the closed doors between us. And in two seconds, she disappeared into the tunnel. Thank you. It is difficult to know what to do in a situation where someone is violent or threatening. Sharing our experiences through storytelling helps us to understand how other people have felt in the same circumstances. If you have an experience you'd like to share, or you just want to try improving your storytelling skills, head on down to a free workshop held every Tuesday. You can find details on hongkongstories.com. Since Hong Kong Stories started in 2012, We've heard all kinds of stories, and each one was a true first-person story told by the person it happened to. Some of the stories are about big events, like the stories on today's podcast, but others are funny, puzzling, joyful, and contemplative. 
Whatever your story, we want to hear it. Our second story today has been taken from the vault. This story was told before a live audience at a show in 2016. Here is Sheridan. Back when I was a foreign correspondent living in Cambodia, I had a number of brushes with the law, or what passed for the law in a country where there were various factions fighting for power. And in those days, we had a king called Sihanouk. He spent most of his time living in exile, but every now and again, he would fly into Phnom Penh and check on his role in the political process and hold a little press conference at the airport. And all of his journalists would have to rush there and cover it. Now, the king didn't trust any Cambodians to guard him since there was all these wars going on. So he traveled with a retinue of North Korean bodyguards given to him by his buddy, Kim Il-sung, who also gave him a 30-room palace outside of Pyongyang and an air choreo jet to fly around the world at a time when most North Koreans were actually starving. And these North Koreans were big, kind of hunky even. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'll just learn a few words of Korean to try to butter them up a little bit, and maybe I can get closer to the king and do my job. So I would be like, <laughs> See how smiling I am? I'm not going to hurt anybody. But they were pretty stoic. Rumor had it that to get the job, they had to punch a cow in the head and kill it with one blow. <laughs> so here we are out on the tarmac, I'm usually the smallest person in the press corps, so I'm rushing up to the front to be the, at the very front of the crowd with my tape recorder, pressing up to the king, but I can't hear what he's saying. So I'm pressing forward. The North Korean bodyguard is pushing me back. I'm pressing forward. We're in this push of war. And suddenly he grabs me by the boob and he squeezes it like he's going to get something to come out of me other than squeals of pain. So I did what any self-respecting, feisty little reporter would do in that situation. I bit him. <laughs> so the next thing I know, I wake up all alone on the tarmac. My watch has been stolen. We have this tradition in the press corps that when any visiting dignitary came to town and gave a press conference and then uh, went into the city, you had to jump in your car and race off after him. And just in case there was a a bomb went off or an assassination attempt, things like that did happen in those days. So you would be the first person on the scene to report that too. So I wake up all alone. It hurt like a motherfucker. <laughs> I never did find out who stole my watch, but to this day, I still get a little short of breath around big, hunky Korean guys. So right around the same political period, it was June 1993. The United Nations had just held an election in Cambodia to determine which of these warring factions was going to rule. I had done what I usually do in a day, done some interviews, gone to a briefing, went to a press conference in the afternoon, filed all of my stories for the day, and went to have a late dinner with my best friend in Cambodia. Her name was Leah, and she was amazing. She could speak fluent Khmer, and the way that she lived her life, just wanting to sample every dish and insisting that I do the same, she was an inspiration. 
Leah had come to Cambodia as a photographer with a sense of social justice, and before long, she was given a job by the United Nations to document human rights abuses in the country. They gave her a big white Toyota Land Cruiser with UN written on the side. But Leah didn't know how to drive. So one day, I took her to the parking lot of the Olympic Stadium. I taught her how to use a stick shift. We were pretty inseparable, except when she was out sampling all the kinds of men the UN peacekeeping operation had to offer, something I admired as well, because I was always too shy. So it's around 11 PM. We're at an outdoor restaurant. We've just finished our dinner. We're having fruit shakes. A group of men walks over to our table. One is wearing military fatigues. Another one has some sort of military jacket on. It's not really clear who they are. They say to Leah in Khmer, it's very dangerous in Cambodia at night. Your friend needs to come with us so we can see her home safely. Leah says, well, that's okay. I work for the United Nations. I will make sure she gets home safely. They don't look at me. They don't speak to me. They say to Leah again, it's very dangerous in Cambodia at night. She needs to come with us for her own safety. I speak enough Khmer to know this is not going very well. Leah makes a motion to me that we need to make a run for it. We jump into her car and speed away. Soon it's clear we're being followed. We turn down a side street. The car follows us. We turn again. The car follows us too. I direct Leah to drive past the U.S. Embassy. Maybe there'll be some lights on and they'll let us in. As we slow down to look, a car comes in front of us and cuts us off, and another one comes up behind us, and men start getting out of the car. Pop the curb, pop the curb, I yell. Leah's panicked. She's only been driving for a few months, and now I have her doing James Bond-style evasive maneuvers from assassins. She pops the curb up onto the, she pops the car up into the curb, and we drive away. When I look back, I see the two cars conferring. One of them shoots at us and knocks out the rear white, right, right rear window of our car. I see them confer, and one goes off in the direction of our house, or my house, and the other one takes out after us. We're now on a high-speed chase through the streets of Phnom Penh. We're rounding Independence Monument at about 90 miles an hour, and Leah's shouting, where do you want me to go? Where do you want me to go? Finally, I realize the Cambodiana, the Hotel Cambodiana has a security gate. We race there. The gate goes up. We drive in because we're a UN vehicle, and it closes behind us. We race up to the lobby, run in, and are holding each other in the lobby chairs, wondering what to do. Checking in for the night is an option. I go up to the front desk. It's $450 a night. So being a foreign correspondent, maybe kind of glamorous and all, but doesn't pay enough to spend $450 on hotels. So I think maybe I better call my boss and expense this. You know, you'd think someone's trying to kill me outside. It's after midnight. It's not like we're using the pool. No discount. <laughs> so we get a room. Sinbad and the Seven Seas is the late movie. Neither of us can sleep. About 3 a.m., Leah goes down to uh, the guard at the front security gate, 
The guard points to a car across the street under a tree. They're still waiting for us. The next morning, Leah goes off to report the damage to her car, and I start making phone calls from the bedside table. I call the United Nations. I call the CIA station chief at the U.S. Embassy. I call the political attache there, too. I call the Cambodian government. I want to know who is trying to kill me and why. About 3 o'clock that afternoon, I get a phone call back from the information minister of the Cambodian government. He's talked to the minister of national security, and he says, there's this man called Prince Chakrapong, a member of the royal family. Don't let that fool you. In fact, he was such a bad guy that he tried to join the party of the Khmer Rouge, which had already killed 2 million people in Cambodia, and they were like, no, you go form your own party. You're too bad for us. So, <laughs> so at a press conference the previous day, Prince Chakrapong had contested in the elections and didn't like the result and said he was breaking away seven provinces of Cambodia to form his own country. And some of his men who'd spent the day ransacking UN peacekeeping offices in those provinces to throw the peacekeepers out of their so-called new country had decided to take care of me. They didn't like the questions that I was asking. So, the information minister told me, you are free to go. We can guarantee your safety. People ask me why I didn't leave Cambodia that day. And the truth is, being a foreign correspondent was the only thing I ever wanted to do. I'd seen The Killing Fields and The Year of Living Dangerously and all of those movies. I knew what I had signed up for, and I loved it. But that was the last time I ever accepted an assignment in a war zone. When I was assigned to go to, Cambo or go to Bosnia next, I said no, and I quit. Leah went, though, to continue her human rights work in a country with even less law and more disorder than Cambodia. Tragically, she never made it home. Thanks for listening to this story brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. We'd also like to thank the Fringe Club today, especially Stephanie and Abe, who take care of us during our performances and make sure everything is as smooth as can be. The music for this podcast was created and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell. <laughs>